This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on Thursday the 17th of March on St. Patrick's Day and Purim. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue. Towns and cities are being bombarded. There have been also some notable anti-war protests in Russia. There are glimmers this week of a diplomatic breakthrough. In other news, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and Anusha Ashouri have been released from Iran and have travelled back to Britain. A third prisoner, Murad Tabaz, has reportedly been released, but it remains under house arrest. And in what's been described as one of the blackest days in the English Premier League, Roman Abramovich's Chelsea played Saudi Arabia's public investment funds, Newcastle United. In the past few episodes, we've thought about the invasion of Ukraine, and we'll do so again this week. In this episode, we'll be thinking about moral compromises and signalling and expressing comfort versus practical aid. We'll also be thinking about the news cycle itself. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have back again for another chat, Helen Froh, who's Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University. Hi, Helen. Hi, Simon and everyone. Hi. Also back again, we've got Graham A. Forbes, who's Head of the Philosophy Department here at Kent. Hi, Graham. Hi, Simon. And a new guest for us this week, uh, we've got Lucy O'Brien, who's Professor of Philosophy at UCL. Hi, Lucy. Hello, Simon. Helen, Graham. Delighted to be here. Uh, And Lucy's just here for the crack because it is St. Patrick's Day. Uh, (laughs) Stereotyping. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Actually, because this is just audio, so our our listeners won't see it. But it's nice, Lucy, you've dressed up as a leprechaun for this episode. Thanks for doing that. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, the past few episodes, uh, we've seen us discuss the conflict in Ukraine. It's become clear over the past few weeks that many governments have been making some uneasy compromises and deals with Russia and many other states. And of course, we know that happens all the time. As we speak, Boris Johnson is discussing oil and energy with many countries in the Middle East, many of whom have dubious human rights records, to say the least. Joe Biden was exploring a deal with Venezuela recently, and that was causing some disquiet in the US. And of course, we've been seeing what's happened with the Nord 2 pipeline. Uh, We can say with hindsight that some deals were bad deals that in some way crossed a line, but hindsight's always a a wonderful thing. And anyway, whenever we think about hindsight and what happened in in the past, some deals may always have been bad, but some compromises are necessary, for example, on trade, on energy, on on investment. So I'm just wondering um, for the three of you to start things off, where does a leader draw the line? Uh, What principles should they be guided by in the real world? Or in other words, right now, Western leaders have to keep the lights on. So who are they going to do deals with? And what do we do in the future? So any thoughts about moral compromises and political deals? I mean, one thought just to open this up with is a question about what it is that you're trying to achieve. So, of course, if there's something that you're trying to achieve, you can make compromises if those compromises make it more likely you're going to achieve the thing you're trying to achieve. But it really depends on you having something that is morally valuable at the end that you're working towards. If what you're trying to achieve is just maintaining your grip on power, 
that's not going to be morally valuable in the way that ensuring that your constituents don't die of exposure or don't starve. These things might be morally valuable things for which certain compromises might seem necessary. But it really depends on on kind of what ends we have, I would think, um, as to what counts as a good or a bad compromise. I think I'd also like to, you know, the kind the, the the judgment we take of somebody when they're in the situation that they've got to do something. And let's say that we're counting this as a case where you've got to do something bad or evil for some uh, good and that that's justified in some ways. And in this case, we might think you still want to know how, what responsibility they have for putting themselves in the position, <laughs> right? You wouldn't want to start from here, as yeah. as people uh, sometimes put it. So there was a cost of energy review in 2017 by Helm, and you, there were lots of recommendations that weren't acted on, as far as I understand it. Now, obviously, at the point of crisis, mm-hmm. being the person sitting on the sidelines going, well, you should have thought of this and you know done your infrastructure work earlier or made better friends or plowed your money into renewables isn't very helpful. And governments can do damage by saying, but look, crisis demanded it on each occasion yeah. and not, and then not be held responsible for, that, for failures to do sort of um, infrastructure work in in the long term yeah i mean i think that's right it's pretty disingenuous at this at this kind of moment of crisis as lucy says to sort of throw your hands up and say oh gosh well we don't have any choice as if that somehow exempts you from the the moral criticism of Mm -hmm. you know cozying up to to saudi arabia and so on that the reason why you're in this position is what matters right so the fact that you're in a position in which you can't help but do things that seem to be wrong isn't really much of a justification if you had all these earlier opportunities in which you could have done otherwise and therefore ended up, you didn't have to, you could have avoided ending up in, in this position. So I think one of the reasons why we're quite, it's not as if we don't recognize, clearly most people recognize that governments have to make various trade-offs, that they are constricted by various political and global realities. Um, I think everybody understands that. Um, the reason why people are critical of these kinds of situations is because we strongly feel that they could have been avoided. And it's the fact that they were avoidable at some point in the past had had our politicians made better choices and planned ahead. I mean, one of this, this also came out really in the pandemic. I mean, as Lucy says, that you, know, you get these various re- reviews and reports that make all these recommendations, as there was about infectious disease outbreaks, and um, one prior to the COVID outbreak, there's a significant report that made a lot of recommendations of steps that ought to be implemented in, to anticipate this kind of crisis and that they weren't implemented. And again, you sort of see this sort of um, thought, this excuse that gets thrown up of kind of, oh, well, this is completely unprecedented. We couldn't expect, you know, it's your job as a government to plan for this kind of thing. This is why it's so annoying when politicians say things like, I'm not going to deal with hypotheticals. I mean, that's your job, right? If you're telling me that you cannot imagine things that might happen, I really don't think you ought to be the Home Secretary. Because it's your job to imagine hypotheticals. I want you to anticipate a terrorist attack. I want you to anticipate a pandemic um, or an energy crisis and have a plan for what you'll do and not just sort of say, well, gosh, you know, I couldn't possibly be expected to anticipate things that haven't happened yet. I think the same is just true in this case with the energy crisis. You know, it's it's not as if it was unforeseen that Russia was going to go nuts at some point. People have been saying for quite a long time that this looks like quite a volatile situation. I mean, they did annex Crimea eight years ago. I mean, that was... You know, it's not clear how much of a signal you want. 
I, I always wonder as well whether, whether the phrase should be annex Crimea. I mean, I keep on everyone just repeats annex. It's just invaded, right? Anyway, but you know, I mean, you're it's right. Just, Sorry, it's that an was occupation, right? I mean, it's yeah. just it's it's just a, a straightforward occupation. It's I know annex always makes it sound like they've sort of you know just built an extension. Into the I know. Garden, <laughs> garden room. <laughs> yeah, it's like like it's a lovely conservatory that they just stuck on the back of the house. And yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just it's just a, a very prolonged, violent occupation. Sorry, Graham, go on. So one thought about compromise here, I mean, I, I like the thought, look, but there were the reports, there were things that we saw coming, and I'm imagining what the excuses they're going to come up with for that are. And they go, well, look, there wasn't the political will at the time. I couldn't have done anything, just me. I had to maintain my political alliances, and it's only when the kind of politically opportune moment arises that we can act. And so in some sense, there's an excuse that says you've got to wait until a crisis to actually change anything. And so you start thinking about, look, so what what compromises are we worried about here? So I couldn't have done that earlier by myself because I would have compromised my career by kicking up a bigger fuss and being the only person who's sticking their head above the parapet. And you go, well, great, you should have done that then. Maybe preventing a pandemic is the kind of thing to sacrifice a career over. So, so I think there's something really interesting about the reasons why people couldn't have acted at the time that just seem massively dwarfed now by the consequences that we get because they couldn't have done any different. Like, well, you you could have and should have done, and that would have involved moral compromise, but frankly, a, a less compromising one. I think one worry is that we, I mean, I think that that's right, but I think that there's a question about what are possible explanations of these things that can be offered, and then there's what's the actual explanation in this case? And I suspect the actual explanation in this case is that it's really hard for a government to say, well, gosh, we've really got to wean ourselves off Russian oil because, you know, that's terrible because look, it's this nefarious regime doing all these all these terrible things. Given their ties to Russian money, and as is now becoming very well reported, but it's not, you know, it's not as if this is news, right? Given, in particular, the close relationship the Conservative Party has had to Russian money, it just looks, it's really... That seems like a much more likely explanation of why they weren't keen to try and push this idea that we've really got to try and start weaning ourselves off Russian oil. It's just that it's hard to make that argument and consistently keep on accepting money from people, for example, who've got these close connections to Putin's regime. Well, I, I just want to note that there is something sort of interesting about having philosophers thinking about the dirty hands problem, particularly understood as a kind of idea that political goods rather than moral goods can can clash or conflict with our basic moral principles i mean just just because of the sort of weber idea that that you know the last given the nature of the state and the given the nature of political decision making the last people you know pache plato the last people that should be in charge of political decision making would be scientists or philosophers or academics right because each decision will be weighed in the moment there are just really hard things to I mean you can be a very I'm not suggesting this is the case but you can be a careful and attentive government that feeds a lot into your infrastructure and your risk planning and still be faced with a problem of this kind where it looks like you've got to do something evil and I, and and I suppose there is there is the thought that I mean there's just an interesting question whether we as academics have the skill set that would be applicable in that moment to do the evil necessary thing if there if there is such a case maybe we would argue there never would be if we'd done due diligence but humans are finite and 
time is short and and so on. So I, I, that's just a reflection on on uh, on the sort of question we're setting ourselves. Hearing you speak, Lucy, it brings to mind the last nine years when I've been dean of faculty, frankly, and having to do lots of evil and terrible things. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's a good question about how... So perhaps just to explain to people who don't know about it, so dirty hands is this phrase that it comes from a Sartre uh, play in the 1940s, which is phrased used by lots of political philosophers to examine these sort of questions about basically doing bad or, or perhaps, you know, even evil things, but for a greater good that's broadly, and then we get into the details of what that means. And it comes back to Graham's thought at the start about the, the ends. And yeah, perhaps philosophers, if we were faced with this, then we would, would, would we be able to act impurely and um, and suck it up, I suppose. <laughs> I think we've uh, got plenty of evidence that philosophers are very capable of acting impurely. Absolutely. As I was saying, God, this, this recalls the, the time when I was dean, Graham was nodding vigorously of all the bad things I had to do. Can, can, I, ta- can, I, can I take us to, to, to a different thought, though? So all the way through we've been speaking, particularly early on, Helen and Lucy, you were talking quite rightly about politicians taking responsibility and if they'd have done this previously and, and so on and so forth. And in fact, in, in one sense, you're absolutely right, because government of the day is supposed to be similar, if not the same as, and assumed to be the same as the government of yesterday, right? You can't keep, as a politician, you can't keep on saying, hey, not me, Gov, it wasn't my fault, right? Because the whole thing falls apart. But it's a kind of necessary fiction, right? Because in some cases, the people who are trying to act now weren't the people in those roles in 2017 in that time of that report, uh, Lucy. So I'm just wondering if we can just pause a little bit and think about how responsibility works in this situation, where, where you're thrust into a situation of the political moment, actually someone else's fault or even an administration's fault from five or 10 years ago, and you're having to pick up the pieces. I'm just wondering what's, you have responsibility to sort the problem out, but I'm wondering how that responsibility carries over from from the past doings of, of a previous administration. I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts about that. I suppose I think there's a distinction between, as a well, your responsibility for the action that you commit mm-hmm. at this moment, and obviously that you have to you have to face the the facts of your decision situation. Yeah. Um, so you have to you have to be able to, you're constrained by what you can do and what's feasible and so on in those moments. But I think we think of other kinds of responsibility, like responsibility for your character. Mm-hmm. We think about responsibility, and perhaps this is interesting, responsibility for, for, for your friends, for your group, right? So if you just we readily and I think rationally blame someone, if they remain friends with somebody who is a bully and does do nothing about it, right? Mm-hmm. And they might not be uh, sort of th- – so So I think in, in these sorts of cases, I mean, when one goes into politics, one normally does so as part of a party and the party comes in with various kinds of track records. So I do think, I mean, obviously, you've got to get on with the business of governance, but there is room for sort of critical distancing in in areas, the, the history of your party or the character, indeed, of your party that you want to distance yourself from or, or not. And, you know, that's common to to any politician now or whatever stripe that there are earlier actions of of their government that they deeply disagree with. But I think then there's a sort of 
perhaps then the responsibility is like, how are you going to manage your relationship with your friend or your party or your institution? So, I mean, one question is, is there any possibility of escaping moral compromise? You know, if if one didn't want to get dirty hands, like, is there is there a way of doing this? It, it's no. not clear that being an academic is going to do it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I've always been really sceptical of, of the the idea of dirty hands is it's traditionally presented as, as um, situations in which you can't help but do wrong. So if, take a sort of straightforward case, if I sort of, you know, turn up at a situation and I've got only bad option, um, but one is less bad, then morality re- requires me to do the less bad thing. And I don't do anything wrong in doing the less bad thing. That's what I ought to do. That's what, that's what morality demands. Um, and so saying that I somehow get dirty hands by doing what morality requires just looks kind of peculiar. I think dirty hands is only really applicable to cases that we've talked about already, the cases in which, as a result of my wrongdoing, that I find myself in this position of having Mm -hmm. to choose between these two bad options. But when it's not a result of my wrongdoing, I don't think dirty hands applies at all. I think, you know, just a fairly standard situation. I mean, government... Governments make trade-offs about stuff all of the time, right? They constantly yeah. think about the distribution of resources, right? Money that's spent on education isn't spent on healthcare. They're trading people's lives against museums, against galleries, against parks, and all. You know. the, the idea that you there's nothing particularly mysterious about moral compromises. We make those compromises all the time. Our worries arise in cases in which people face these situations between various bad, where they have to choose between various bads. And we feel that the reason they're there is because they've acted wrongly in the past. So I just, I just, I, I want to note that there's sort of two ways you can use the, the idea of compromise. One, and I think the original use would be something like that, you know, you think the right thing to do is, is this, and I think it's something else, right? We've both come to a moral decision, and then we compromise, we co-promise to, as it were, abide by some agreement we make about what we're in fact going to do, given our our moral disagreement. Uh, And that seems to be a very, very common feature of political life. So, you know, your party, those kind of being bound to do the thing that you think is wrong because something has to be done and it's in some way a group decision is a bit different from the the evaluation of uh, the goods and bads that are going to result from a, a course of action and the determination that you'll carry the bad consequences given or the bad elements of it given the good elements of it so I just I just wonder if it operates a bit differently when it's a sort of group decision making or whether it's a a single one I don't think it does really I mean the fact that so say you and I say I want to do a and let's say a is the right thing to do but you won't agree to a you want to do B, but I won't agree to B because B is wrong. Um, and so we agree on C, which is like not as bad as B, but it's not what we ought to do. Well, I'm constrained, right? Because you won't, and say, you know, say we have to act together to, to act at all. It's not my fault that I can't do A. It's your fault. I just now have an option between B and C. And if C is the less bad, then that's what I ought to do. You act wrongly by putting me in this position in which the right option is no longer available to me or the, the best option is no longer available to me. This is just a case in which my hands aren't dirty. You've made it such that I can't do what I ought to do. And so now you, by doing that, you shift what I ought to do. Um, so you act wrongly and I don't in that case. So, I mean, one of the things, as, as Lucy pointed out, is you can be responsible for your character. And I took the, the worry about moral compromise here is that the thing that you compromise isn't just that you, you, you co-promise to do something that's, that's suboptimal, but you compromise your character. 
that you actually get corrupted personally by your involvement in this stuff. So you're doing the best thing you can do in the circumstances, but it sacrifices the the most valuable thing that you have, your character. And so you can't come out of it as as a flourishing person at the end because you have been compromised by this. If somebody... So take, you know, the sort of standard trolley problem, right? So I have to, to say, I, say I can only save 100 people's lives by, by diverting a trolley to where it's going to kill one person instead. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that I compromise my moral character by saving the 100 lives at the cost of the one. I don't think I do anything wrong in that case. I think given, the, you know, how, all, how hard it would be for me to kill someone, I think I'd do something admirable in the case where I'm, where I'm able to do it. I'm pretty sceptical of the idea that those people kind of end up morally tainted, often People who do the, make these kind of compromises are pretty heroic, I think. I mean, they often end up pretty traumatized. They well, often end up right. That's very trauma is very different from saying someone's tainted their cat, like compromised their character. Um, it's not that different if you think of it um, in the sense that they're no longer capable of flourishing. So, so their character no longer is conducive to their flourishing. I mean, that's a harm to them, but I don't know that it's a kind of moral bad. I mean, we'd have to think about particular cases and exactly what we mean by flourishing here. But the fact that, I mean, that's part of what makes it heroic is that people do things that they know will be traumatic to them, but that can still be really morally admirable. Um, And so it's not, I don't think the mere fact that somebody does something that's bad is any reason to think that their character is compromised when it's not wrong. I I think it can break. I mean, so one of the the things that is an indicator for PTSD is the feeling like you were responsible for doing the things. You know, merely witnessing something bad is one thing. Being the instrument that brought about that badness makes it much more likely you're going to suffer serious trauma. And and I think, sure, that's a harm to them. But the idea that you're you're then kind of... You're not going to be able to go and do subsequent things as well because you you won't function as well. You You will not be able to be the moral person you need to be in future. So, so we might not blame them for for this kind of compromise, but it might be a serious moral cost to them to undergo yeah, these harms. Bear on whether it's permissible, if, if we thought that the effects would be so bad that say it's going to make them, they're going to be become this kind of moral monster or something. Well, they'll become very violent, engage in lots of wrongdoing. We might think that makes it impermissible for them to do this action. But I'm thinking about cases in which we agree that it's it's permissible for them to do it, but it's just very costly for them. I mean, I see that you want to make it a question of what's permissible and impermissible. And I think want to make it a question of what what's good for a, a, a good character for a flourishing human being. So I think we're using kind of different frameworks here. And that's why we're we're kind of talking past each other. There's prudential flourishing and moral flourishing, right? And so you're kind of conflating those things. So there's things that might be bad for a person and then you're sort of moving towards, well, and then they might not be able to be the moral person we want them to be. And that suggests something like that they might engage in wrongdoing towards others. Um, If that were the case, then that could be a reason for them not to perform the action. But the fact that somebody will, will not flourish in a kind of prudential sense can make this very costly and therefore make it super arbitrary for them to do it. But I don't think that it, I don't think it would make it wrong for them. I think that's what makes it an admirable sacrifice is that sometimes people do things that leave them traumatised and unable to function in the ways they could before. So, I mean, I think that there are plenty of examples where, just to think about that very interesting discussion, there there are plenty of examples where actions can be both morally admirable in the way that Helen's trying to indicate, but also deep sources of regret, not only for the action uh, agent themselves, but also for anyone anyone looking on. But I, I will say, just to bring it back to the the news uh, that we're thinking about, I, I don't, th- I wouldn't classify Boris Johnson's actions in the Middle East right now as being both 
admirable and a source of regret. Perhaps, perhaps one, but not the other. Um, but, 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 but this brings us back to the, to the problem. I think they're necessary. Uh, not that I'm a big fan of, of Boris Johnson. I mean, I think that that, that, that discussion, though, uh, Graham Hand, kind of Graham's phrase was using different frameworks. I think we, we probably are there. So I can see where you're coming from, Helen. And we're just thinking about, as Graham said, you know, permissibility, impermissibility. You know, in the end, what's going to what's going to be the right thing to do? But these things are still going to be sources of regret. And again, not just for the agent, but perhaps for anyone looking on, they can say, "What, what a terrible thing that someone had to choose that action, and they had to make that compromise." And so it might be that they're choosing the less bad option. And it might be the right thing to do, but it's still a bad option, right? Oh, sure, and, yeah. Like and, that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and that itself might be morally interesting. I mean, not just as a calculation, but it's still going to be morally bad. You're still kind of, in your scenario, killing one person to save 100. And that's going to be... Sure. But I just, I, I, I am kind of um, resistant to the idea that we should draw these kind of conclusions about that, that somehow, simply in virtue of having performed this harmful action, that something's tainted about my character. I, you know, it's that that I want to resist. It's not as I'm not just making claims about what's permissible and impermissible. I want to make the stronger claim about uh-huh. um, how how that bears on someone's character that they were able and willing to do this thing, which is a really bad thing to do. And I want to resist the thought that that somehow makes the person bad in some sense. I think that's false. Oh, well, okay, I'll say something quickly then, Lucy. So I, I don't know whether, yeah, in that situation, I think I agree with you. I don't think. I'd want to say the person's a bad person and that they're blameworthy, right? I mean, if they haven't themselves created the situation that they then find themselves in. But I think there's still something you can say about their character where their character is, is in some way deteriorated. And I think that's just morally really? also morally interesting. Yeah. Somebody does this really, really difficult thing to do. Oh, yeah. No, 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 and no. you it- want to say... No, you know, sorry, sorry that you did this heroic thing, but also, like, your character has now deteriorated. <laughs> like, I mean, well, yeah, yeah, why? I want to say that, but but without, bl- but not blaming them, right? No, not blaming. Not blame. It's not about. I mean, it's just it's just not true that their character has deteriorated. It's not that it has, and they're not responsible for it. I just think it's not true. Lucy, do you want to come in? Um, I I just wanted to kind of go back to the idea that we were thinking about responsibility. Uh Um, And if you think, so if you think that there are, you know, tragic cases where, I mean, obviously within some frameworks, you'll never do it, you know, you're not doing the right thing if you're doing the necessary thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't be doing the wrong thing and doing the necessary thing. Whereas in other frameworks, that you can nevertheless be doing uh, something bad or and uh, so my my i just wanted to re- kind of go back to the idea that we can still hold somebody to be responsible um i mean in some ways in it's not even clear whether we want it to be morally responsible but we want it to be that in some way someone who who said well, yeah it was bad it was necessary i have no regrets you know i forgot about it there would be we would be worried in that case. So the kind of the sense that we feel that somebody has an obligation to carry forward in some way the cost that was borne by an act that they were causally responsible for. I mean, I agree with Helen. It sounds wrong to think that their character was tainted, but it is interesting that it comes with these sort of certain kinds of demands of regret. So there are actions that are rightly done 
that we demand somebody regrets. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I agree. You, I you can right. be responsible in the sense of, say, being accountable, where you're called upon to give an explanation of what you did. And that, that particularly attaches to the person who performed the action. But I don't think there's any reason to think that regret that this person had to be killed attaches particularly to the person who had to turn the trolley. I think we should all regret the fact that this person had to be killed. And you know, it's really bad for this person who had to turn the trolley that they had to be the one to do it. And they, you know, we, we should feel sorry for them that they were put in this position. But I don't think that regret attaches to them particularly compared to the sense we should all feel that it's just a really awful state of affairs that this has to happen. But and, and, and the person turning the trolley can be picked out as having particular duties to explain why they did what they did because they're the person who did it. But I don't think there's this kind of richer sense of them being responsible, say, in terms of, I don't know, being liable to bear certain costs or, or so on compared to other people who just didn't happen to be in that position of being the person who was able to rescue. So here's, a, I mean, in a way, I nearly agree with that, Helen, right? So here's a... <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> so here's a thought, right? And in one sense, yeah, you're right. I mean, if someone finds themselves in that situation, I, I agree with you, actually, they, they, they might be performing a heroic act and we should thank thank them that they did it and not us there but for the grace of god go i and other and other sorts of sentiment and it should be a source of of collective regret but then i think if someone were the sort of person who then turned around and say well yeah i regret it but you know you should as well in fact my regret should be equal to yours right if someone did that <laughs> then i kind of be thinking that's a bit weird <laughs> right <laughs> So, I mean, because it, it would be, I mean, I think that that's, that's some, I mean, not paradoxical in the, in a very formal sense, right? But it, it, just going back to what Lucy said, if someone actually said that in a situation, having just, you know, pulled the trolley track or, or did whatever judgment, whatever action they did in government and said, well, it's a, it's a collective regret. I'm just the guy who's here standing here making the decision. Um, it could have been anyone. We should all regret it equally. I don't have any more regrets than any of you should. Then I'd probably think there's I mean, something that, a bit that, wrong. That's because we that. arrive in these positions, right? So somebody somebody pursues a career in government, they accept a post sure, as foreign secretary sure. or whatever. If we imagine there's just ten of us all standing by the trolley switch, and so we draw straws, and I just get the short straw. The idea that I should then, and then I so I have to I pull the switch. You know, the idea that sort of the regret especially attaches to me and not to the other nine people who had to draw a straw seems kind of weird to me. I think we should all feel. And then you should feel, you know, bad for me that I was the one who got the short straw. Yeah. So, so, so in that in that situation, I think you're absolutely right. In, if it was literally about drawing straws, yeah. But if, yeah, if but someone... Kind of, in, so in a situation in which I'm not responsible for the fact that I'm the person who has to make this decision, then it seems like there's no special regret. But I just don't think that's a good analogy to the political case, because in the political case, people have pursued careers where they want to be the ones who make these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, you, yeah. You, you, don't, you don't become foreign secretary by mistake. Why would any? Why would anybody want to pursue Despite these positions? Like. Who was morally good? If that's the way, like so, yeah. so you are blame. Well, you you pursued that. You wanted to do this, and sort of like, well, I wanted to do this because I saw who else was running. Which, yeah. Uh, which is so so alarmingly true um, in so many cases. Um, uh, Lucy, do you want to come in on this as well? I, I just I just wanted to point out that you know trolley cases where we end up having not even individual decision making but straw drawing. I mean that that's why I th I think I think these cases can clarify, but they can also sort of derail our um, ordinary <laughs> instincts. <laughs> um, so there's a beautiful uh, uh, 
passage that that um, Russell talks about having to ditch his lover because she was married and it was in his campaign for nuclear disarmament and he thought it would in some way salary his reputation. I think she was divorced actually, but, um, and he writes this icy little passage on how, and and she was then heartbroken and died shortly afterwards. And he writes this icy little passage on having no regret regrets because he did the right thing because he acted in a way that was consistent with the greater good and you read this passage and you think yeah <laughs> you you know you may have chosen to do the right thing and it may have might have been a sort of heroic personal sacrifice for you but but you should still you know this was a this was an event in the history of your life that you that that one would demand a kind of relation to that you're not expressing in this i mean of course it might be a fragment and so on but i think this this uh, this idea that you know being the agent of an act that has certain kinds of consequences and i'm not sure the draw you know one one will need to characterize the act as an intentional act of you know killing or something um being the agent of that act and not having a certain kind of retrospective relationship to it would make you i mean i'm not wrong or bad or whatever but but i think there's something about what we demand in each other as as ethical agents that we we bear certain sorts of relations to those earlier acts. Yeah, so perhaps when Boris Johnson stands down and writes his autobiography of time in government, we'll 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 be looking for various apologies uh, and so on and so forth. Listen, that was a really good discussion. Thanks, three of you. Let's leave that segment there, um, and we'll see you all uh, in the next part when we talk about practical aid. And welcome back. Uh, in news, just in, um, Helen's laptop battery has died and she hasn't got her charger. So she's left our discussion. It's now just me, Luke, and Graham. Um, but this isn't a stain on her character. It isn't a stain on her character <laughs> at all. Um, I, I think we just upset her by disagreeing with her in the, in the, last, in the last segment. Um, so, uh, Lucy Graham, we've seen an enormous outpouring of emotion and support directed to the people in Ukraine uh, in the last few weeks and before them to people in Afghanistan, to the Yemen uh, and elsewhere. But what do you think we should be doing not just to satisfy our feelings, which may be some of what's going on, that is, if we do anything at all. And what do we do that's actually practical? So a couple of weeks ago when I was on an episode with um, Helen and Chris Armstrong, we talked about sanctions being effective, not just uh, sanctioning countries or business leaders to make us feel good. And there's obviously something going on here that sometimes we may just have to do things that are directly practical and effective, not just things that make us feel Good. Uh, Graeme, you had some things you wanted to say about this topic. Yes. Yeah, so my my social media has been filled with people on the one hand running campaigns to donate things of various kinds to raise money and so on. And then on the other hand, people strongly advising that you don't donate your 
Um, your unwanted items, if they're unwanted by you, they're quite plausibly also unwanted by Ukrainians. They've got quite a lot on their plate at the moment. And it reminded me of an experience I had some years ago in Kansas City, Missouri, when I went to a, a conference on hunger. And one of the things that happened at this conference is that we formed a little production line of putting sort of lentils and rice and, and various other dried foods into pouches that would then get sent off to places that received aid from the US as kind of um, single meals that you, you, know, you could add water to. And a colleague of mine at the time pointed out that this was a really absurd process we were going through where they've rented a room in an expensive hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, and had conference delegates who are very bad at being on a production line, working on a production line during their lunch hour to badly fill bags full of food aid, when you could just pay professional people who are skilled at working on a production line to work much more efficiently and much more accurately. And indeed, you could just pay those people in wherever the famine is to do that. And it would stimulate the local economy rather than undermining the farmers who aren't getting the food aid and aren't selling food because it's being given as aid. So, so that sort of really made me think about what we were doing this thing for. And it was to make us feel like we were contributing something to people who were in need of aid in a way that just putting cash in a, someone's bank account doesn't leave you with that kind of response. And one of the thoughts here is in, in Ukraine, we're clearly in a kind of an information war where one of the things that's being fought for is the war continuing to be in our attention, the continued empathy for people in Ukraine that will allow us to bear the financial costs of you know, rising living costs, rising energy bills um, associated with the sanctions through this kind of performative empathy. And, and so actually, even if the performative empathy isn't actually helping, one of the reasons that it's being promoted potentially is to make it the case that we're in an emotional state where we're prepared also to bear the financial costs that are that are indirect, that are required for the kind of um, practical aid that the government is is supplying to work. So there's there's a few things going on there, but but that thought that on the one hand we're really easily manipulated into doing things that allow us to feel empathy without questioning whether or not they're effective, but also that that manipulation on us might be a, a practical strategy that gets used to make sure that the things that are effective actually happen and have our support and have the political will behind them. Yeah, thanks, Graham. Uh, Lucy, have you got any thoughts on on this? So I just I just wanted to say something. I mean, a little dry, really, about setting the thing up. About we sort of have this choice between doing the the sort of practically useful thing or the thing that, you know, makes us feel good or that we gain comfort from in, in our powerlessness and so on. So, I mean, it's a fact about human actions that, you know, although human lives are short and there's only so many things you can do in it, one cool thing about human act, cool thing, one cool thing about human action is that a single action can be a doing of many things. So you can, you know, you can be being practically helpful and you can be encouraging others to be practically helpful and you can be signaling 
you know, your intentions for the future, or you can be doing a whole number of things with a single action. So I think, I think that, that in a way, our question is not what kind of actions should we be doing, these practical ones or these, these sort of psychologically comforting ones, which is, it's, I mean, and this is really Graham's point, I think, is that you can be doing these things at the same time. The very same action can be these distinct kinds of acts. And one of the things that a practically wise agent will do is to be able to work out how to, as it were, do the best and most things that they can with with, with the resources that they have. That sounds a bit more like it's a calculation of consequence, and I I don't act, actually think it works like that. But um, but anyway, so that's my relatively dry point: is that when we're setting up the discussion here, where we we need to kind of think about the the very many things that we need would need to be keeping track of, even if we decided that the thing you must do must have the most you know direct effect on those who need it or something like that, because of all the indirect things you could be doing, because of the sort of, the, yeah, the complex number of things you could be doing with a single single act. I, I think that's, that's right. I mean, so one of the, one of the thoughts that, that I, I want to push, I suppose, is often just given how useful money is at being a, a means of exchange, just give transfers of funds is often more practical just, just because it's, designed to be a very effective means of exchange. But that doesn't tend to go with that kind of emotional or you know, empathetic engagement that seems quite important in the way our motivations work. And so you, you potentially end up doing things that look quite unrelated together. So we're going to have, we're going to have a bake sale in which we make some muffins and buy muffins that are less nice than we could get from the shops from people that we work with in order to generate money that we could, in some sense, with less effort, just give to Ukraine without having to sort of pretend to like a muffin. But the reason for the bake sale, I I think, is kind of interesting. Like, why do we bother with the bake sale element when it just seems to add inefficiency? Well, actually, the performative empathizing or or, or feeling and, and the signaling are things that we need to find a way of getting ourselves to do that are much harder to do just with clicking a button that transfers funds from one place to another place. And that role we have for kind of setting up exercises that get those those motivational features involved, I think is kind of odd because it looks on the surface a bit like inefficiency. Just donate money. Why are you having a bake sale? This is just more about showing off your baking skills than it is about Ukraine. But it actually seems to be effective in getting people to emotionally invest in in caring about what happens in Ukraine rather than merely helping. And that caring is useful sort of later down the line and might be morally valuable in itself, but useful later down the line when they're not in the headlines that people go, no, no, I really hope Ukraine's doing well. I'll go and see how they're doing. And it gives a kind of persistence to the help that you might not get if it's just, oh, this is in the news. I'm going to donate some money. Now I'm morally absolved. 
Yes. Could, could, I, could I come in there, Graham? Actually, I think listening to both of you, it's really interesting. You're right, Lucy. Actually, it is quite cool about humans and our actions that they do many, many things. I think it's right. So the, the way you were putting it, though, Graham, so one of these many things we do as part of that of that complex, earlier on when you were talking about performative sympathy, where you've just been discussing now, it's been focused on, as you say, persistence. So across time, so we still care, right? And, that's the, and I think that's right, actually. Um, there does seem to be that importance there it's not just about clicking a button and then there's the possibility very real possibility of forgetting what's going on right but then particular thought i've got because clearly when people see the news be it ukraine or afghanistan or they read about what's happening in china or other sorts of cases some of which i've remembered and some of which i ha- i've i haven't remembered very well at all there's kind of like a, a kind of basic human feeling that's terrible and and we ourselves can can get upset so should it be any part of that sympathy, right, that actually we're we're kind of soothing ourselves or providing harmony for ourselves in some respects, right? Or should it all be directed to the people who are in need? I mean, I think that's that's the really tricky one, right? Because it seems as if I mean, let, let, let me put it out there. If we if we say some of this is about me, that seems awfully selfish. <laughs> awfully. I mean, in the worst pejorative sense. Uh, I'm just wondering what you think about that that thought, Lucy. So, so I had this thought when Graham was talking about the, I mean, th- th- there's a sort of assumption behind this that 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 giving money will be the same sacrifice to everybody, uh, and giving time will be the same sacrifice to everybody. But of course, that's rad- just absolutely not true, uh, particularly with cost of living going up. Now the sort of business of of you know just 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 put some money uh, in the account. Don't give me a two days in a church hall or whatever it is. It's just failing to realise what practical capacities and sacrifices are going to mean to individuals in their different situations. So I think I think you're. I mean, that doesn't sound selfish. No, that's right. That's <laughs> that doesn't selfish. sound. So if you say that, that you think, obviously, we need to be sensitive to the sacrifice an individual is making in, in any case when we think about what, it's, what is demanded of her. You know, it may, be, it, it may be that. I mean, can I just say something about Graham's habit? It's this thing about kind of pro- producing sort of forms of action that are going to be habit forming or going to to uh, result in in actions in the future of course you can have i mean famously if you can get someone to take out a direct debit you know by accosting them in the Tottenham Court Road, then chances are they're still going to be giving their whatever it is, pounds a month in 20 years' time. So so actually, money giving is extremely done in the right way. It's extremely habit-forming. Habit so I, I just wanted to add that. Yeah, and, and I kind of wanted to defend myself a bit. I, I, I think you're totally right, Lucy. I was trying to kind of hold fixed. So we've got a single individual working out how they can help. And, and they're given various options and they're weighing up the one that that kind of feels like they're doing something and the one that feels rather impersonal. And then you've got these different, well, the impersonal one might be more effective, but I'm less motivated to do it and I will I will come out of it with less of a feeling of achievement. Like So, so I, I was imagining it as in a, a single person making a decision. I t- totally take the point that across people, 
different responses are going to be appropriate. And actually, um, often people are kind of wealthy, but time poor or time rich, um, but have no money or just poor on both <laughs> as often is the way. And it turns out being poor takes a lot of time, particularly if you have to justify your existence to everybody when you're 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 trying to meet basic necessities. So so those factors I, I want to entirely agree with and, and hadn't taken myself to be a, assuming otherwise. But good. Any other thoughts on this? Um, I mean, I think the direct debit point is a good a good challenge to me, as it were. Like, so Graham, why do we need any emotional investment here? You don't need emotional investment. You just need to start a direct debit rather than giving a single sum. And that's that's the thing you can do in the same action. You're, so you're just choosing at a, at a time what your actions are and you choose the action that kind of binds you to future things, knowing that your inertia will probably mean you don't cancel it later. That that seems like a good challenge. But I, I also think that there's a kind of related point of of how we regulate our emotional responses that I'm not sure you know, setting up a direct debit entirely deals with. So, um, I mean, Simon, you mentioned Afghanistan. It seems like such a long time ago that we had to have opinions about Afghanistan and, and, and what the right thing to do was. And and slightly less long ago, it seemed like the government was on the brink of collapse because of the prime minister potentially misleading parliament and and now, you know, people have emotionally moved on to caring about a news cycle with Ukraine. And and I'm worried a bit, I suppose, about Plato's metaphor of um, the ship of state under democracy turning into a drunken pleasure cruise as, as people sort of come up with a plan to veer in one direction and then someone else takes over and veers us in another direction. And there's the idea that not just that we we practically help consistently through a direct debit, but we actually continue to engage and pay attention and and feel like there's a relationship. So I don't know, I went to Nepal in 2001 and shortly, like around the time I went, there was a, a big thing where the crown prince killed lots of members of his family. And kind of since then, I, f- I feel like I have a relationship with Nepal that every time in the news there's something about a sort of major earthquake, um, I will I will think, oh, I really ought to donate some money for this. You know, and, and I've got this long-term relationship with this country that hasn't been in the news for some time. But because because I went there and had experiences and so on, and it, it seems like there's this challenge between spreading our, our empathy um, across all the countries of the world equally um, whenever they happen to pop into the news, we suddenly get, I mean, that's not how it works, as I'm sure Lucy's about to point out, that, that in <laughs> fact, um, we seem to care in a very different way about Ukraine than, than we cared nationally about Syria. And that's that's striking in its own right. But, the, you know, so so is there a role for having like a continuing relationship for for countries over a long period of time, perhaps Hong Kong, given given it used to be a British colony, ought to be in our attention in a specific way that maybe Ukraine doesn't warrant as, um, though, though of course the Crimean War was about 150 years ago, perhaps we ought to have this continued regard for it. But, but that idea of we, we've got this kind of emotional constancy that then people try and get us to, to exhibit through through various things like that idea i find really interesting and this is partially just me being a philosopher of time that that i'm in this moment now and i feel all of these things and I, a lot of effort seems to go in binding myself to feel things later when other things are taking my attention 
there is something very interesting about the way in which these these kind of broad social cataclysms make one think a bit differently about your everyday. I mean, sort of norm, a, a sort of a, an average day. I mean, obviously, we are carrying out sort of actions with with wide social significance. I mean, but not sort of that's not what takes up most of our attention on, on a on a daily basis. We're normally thinking about the members of our family and what they need in that day, our students, our colleagues, and and so on. There is something about the discussion that and the sets of problems that get turned up um, when you have this sort of this the the group the whole nation concentrating on a single complex decision problem that involves the whole nation and involves not just us but many other nations and the leaders of those nations. I mean I normally don't think about, you know, Putin and Biden and or, or or Zelensky, right? When I get up, but, but this is this is like put all these characters into our our every everyday life, and I think that does mean. I mean, maybe we should be more attentive to the fact that our that our everyday actions have these reverberating social consequences and fit in than than we usually are. But what what it sort of makes salient. Is the idea? I mean, from both sides, I think we're we're getting a bit obsessed with thinking about what the kind of trade-offs we make sitting in the UK that's as yet, you know, not really been touched by by these crises. But there are signal signalling acts, you know, and and self-comforting acts. Oh, that sounds very rude. Um, all over the. The shop. Both the Russian soldiers presumably are carrying out acts that are signalling their their loyalty. Perhaps they're perhaps signalling to their uh, the the people that they're aggressors to that they should be fearful of them. They're they're having that they're, they're carrying out all sorts of and being ordered to carry out all sorts of acts that I think have the function of binding them closer together so that the and and of course one of the extraordinary things about the 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 war has been this I mean it's funny isn't it the philosophers and and political theorists will sometimes come on and talk about you know munitions and tactics and then you hear some owl fella on today who talks about morale and pride and fighting like tigers i think that was one phrase that i heard this morning so i think i think there's something very interesting about this kind of broad social that we start to think in quite different terms about um the social power of individual individual actions sorry that was a bit of a sort of burbling um that's uh, fine actually i was just going to come straight straight on after that lucy uh thinking about that phrase you know social power of individuals and actually individuals coming together and going back to graham's example of bake sales and and all the other all the other examples he he had i mean what we could be doing is just being isolated individuals reading the news uh and just thinking about it and then clicking a button to give aid but the fact that naturally we don't do that and that we want to come together to have bake sales or indeed discuss it on podcasts and indeed listen 
uh, listen to it right on podcasts and listen to the news. Oh, and, surely and, no one listens to podcasts. <laughs> we have a lot of listeners. Hello to all of our listeners around the world. Um, yeah. Hi, both of you. <laughs> hello, mom. Hello, dad. Um, the fact that we, that we want to come together, actually, and talk in the corridors at work or in whatever social event it is, and actually share our thoughts and feelings about all sorts of things, it's not just naturally it happens. It, we, I mean, that itself is is telling, I think, and telling about therefore what we should be doing. And in fact, it can always have a kind of um, future oriented thought about well, actually, we should be thinking about our energy, and then we put pressure on politicians and what Boris Johnson's doing in the Middle East and so on and so forth. But also, it's got about it's got a type of social glue and realizing that actually there's a lot more in common between us and Ukraine and between us and people in Afghanistan and wherever else than than divides us. And that's that's really significant as well, I think. So here's a question and I mean I'm doing the Socratic bit of of asking questions because I don't know the answers. It feels to me like there's a, a, a an erosion of that social glue and particularly during the pandemic that there has been where We've not had opportunities to gather and our our relationships have been more impersonal. They have been more sort of clicking things on internet sites, on, you know, sort of liking posts, donating money to this or paying for that or ordering this through the post. And, and that kind of social glue has become separated from um, lots of the things that we do to relate to the world. And that, I mean, that's one of the things that, sort of I find striking there's it's actually a novelty to have conversations in corridors now because for so long we didn't have corridors to have conversations in we were working from home or whatever and and then you have this thought of people on social media impersonally criticizing other people for wanting to donate physical things wanting to have this kind of physical connection where they all go to a church hall and do something because really what you should be doing is is this much more efficient click from home, um, and that and the relationship between the social glue and the actions, which of course, as Lucy points out, can come together and maybe you know should come together. That we've seen a difference in that relationship um, in the last couple of years, I thought. But but again, I think it's that there's no there's no um, single model of a single citizen. So for some people, the pandemic has been a kind of a deficit of solitude, right? They suddenly can't go to their office or their workplace. They're just with people in their households all the time. There's not much space to be on your own. You'd have to go and walk around the block a few times. And then for other people, um, the, it's it's a deficit of intimacy or deficit of sociality because they're sort of can't see their families who don't live with them or that they can't gather with their friends and and so on so I think it again I mean I I I take your point that there's something about the the kind of fits all critique that moves in that says this thing that you're trying to do that's that you're trying to do with you know with with a spirit of 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 um goodwill it's not enough it's the wrong goodwill thing to do do another goodwill thing and obviously we don't want we don't want to have nothing to say about kind of fruitless efforts at 
<laughs> being good. But but there is some, A, there's a, just a failure to, I think, understand the different, I mean, it goes back to the money thing, like give money. Well, whatever I haven't, can't pay my gas bill. This this sort of a kind of u- university of direction for how how you're supposed to be a good person when that thing strikes me as utterly dependent on your capacities, your condition, your context, your appetites. And as as Simon said, some attention to how it is that you've decided to live your life, your sense of what you know, who you are and what you should be doing. Listen, uh, that was really great from both of you. Uh, Thanks very much. Should we leave it there and then just come back for a third short part to think about the news itself? And welcome back. Last week, we raised the idea of things mattering, both in and of themselves, and in comparison to other things. We started, but didn't pursue those ideas in the context of the news cycle. Um, So let's focus on that. And in fact, in the last part, I think, Graeme, you were talking about all the various things that have been happening over the last few months and how our attention has changed. And that's often because of of the news cycle. It keeps on turning over. Uh, and evolving. And I think, I can't remember if it was Julian Bagini or Gerald Lang last week talked about the news being concerned with the new, which of course is is right. But how much do you think the news should be concerned with the new and how much should it be concerned with the newsworthy, if I can make that distinction with those labels? Some terrible yet familiar events are still going on. Right? I've mentioned Afghanistan, and we can talk about lots of other places around the world. Um, so I'm just wondering what, what both of you think about that distinction between the new and the newsworthy and and how much we're influenced by the news cycle. So it's, it's going to be true of perception generally that we only pay attention to things that are unexpected. I was at a, a talk by Sussex philosopher Andy Clark fairly recently in which you know he had a, a model of the mind that's really based on the violation of expectation. So this is has been a commonplace thought about the news for some time, you know, dog bites man, that's not news, man bites dog, now that's news. But certainly I think there's a really important role for the newsworthy and one of the the kind of aims of journalism is to pay attention to the boring things and to let us know when they get interesting. One of the the things I often think about in this regard is snooker. So I used to live in Sheffield some years ago and got the the World Snooker Championships um, and you go and you sort of watch it on a big screen. Snooker seems like a really incredibly boring sport, but then you listen to it with the commentary and you have the person pointing out, ah, you see they've set up beautifully for the shot in three shots time. Oh, no, no, it's all... And the commentary really allows you to see that something really exciting is happening in this this very kind of restrained and and quiet sport. And and I feel like good journalism often has that effect, that some committee has met on something and had a very boring and technical discussion that's just dry as, as something can be. And the journalist can kind of bring out, look, so the bit where they passed motion 28B actually is going to have huge significance. And this is a huge moment that we need to pay attention to. And so that that idea that in some sense, it, it all has to be new, but but the fact that a committee has sat and passed motions isn't new. The new thing is noticing that that motion is a really significant thing that we should pay attention to. And that requires someone being a kind of specialist on our behalf 
and paying attention to the working out what expectations we should be having and then telling us when they've been violated. So so I also had the, I mean, as a philosopher of mind, as uh, the thought that the, the human animal is built to be, you know, alert and to adapt their motivations to the to the new and the surprising that's like part but but I don't think that's and and I take Graham's point that there's ways of in a way that's what art forms do I think and what well-made documentaries do and so on is they'll take you something that you didn't know you were interested in and didn't was not remotely Mm -hmm. new and make it and reawaken it for you make it interesting um, to you, I think there is a. I think there is a problem with the news cycle in a way, not that's that's not internal to it, but I think, I mean, it, it may be that for so many of us, partly because of the nature of modern life and so on, it's 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 our only and main, only or main. A way of coming to know what's going on in the world, of learning facts on the ground, and so on. So, you know, if new if news is something that sort of deals with the new, and then there's uh, there's other stuff that is going to give you the background information you need to make sense of that. That's going to keep you hooked on to, you know, the conditions and progress within a country that you're interested in but I think part of it is that the modern life is so speedy (laughs) that very few of us feel that we have the capacity or the appetite to sit down and read the good book on the region or watch the documentaries on the region we're just kind of fed by by news uh Real, so I think there's a sort of interesting. I mean, whether whether that means we should adjust our news to take account of the fact that it's not that those other sources are playing perhaps a a more of a sidelined role. Um, uh, I'm not sure, and make and make sort of uh, slower do slower news in some way. I mean, there's, I'm there's, not sure about that. There's certainly a thought that if journalism is the the first rough draft of history we we never get to read the polished draft these that you know we just we get the the first rough draft and then that's that's the only contact we have with things and so huge amounts depends on one's social circle like if you know someone who has expertise you can defer to them if you are old enough to remember when this happened last time you might have a very different appreciation of it there's there's the kind of George Orwell worry that if people only pay attention only pay attention to the news cycle and don't remember the old ones or don't test the current news wait i th- this week this person's our friend and is good and last week they're our enemy and were bad like yeah. how can i make sense of these contradictory positions like that's a worry and i th- i think there are questions about how our our kind of knowledge relationships are filled in. So one of my favorite things about being an academic um, is just that I know lots of people who know stuff. And so I need to do very little effort to feel like I know what's going on because I know someone who's maybe not only read the good book on the history of the region, but possibly I might know someone who's written it. 
Um, and so I don't have to bother reading it because I can just ask them, you know, do you want to go for a beer? You know about this. I know interesting things about the philosophy of mind. Unlike Lucy, um, it's not because I'm an expert in this. It's because I know people like Lucy. <laughs> um, so so that's a kind of very privileged position to be in that I'm, you know, aware is not universally spread. And so it's not, you know, the deprivation one gets by not having a good ed- education isn't just that one doesn't know stuff, but also you're less likely to know how to know stuff that other people know, because you won't know where the good sources are. You won't have good recommendations. You won't have, you won't have people who themselves have become expert in the thing. So, so, so that's a kind of worry that if we're all we're getting is the news cycle, those who are not in the position of, of kind of privilege of knowing other sources, even if they're living modern life too speedily to, to do the research themselves, they're really going to be at a disadvantage. And, and one worries, of course, for the, the people of Russia, where the, the access to sources is, is getting very restricted. Sean, I was about to talk about about that, so I didn't put it in the in the setup. But of course, then then there's an issue. I mean, we're very lucky in this country and and other people uh, from around the world who do listen to this podcast right, are lucky in in, the, in their news. Uh, but then there are other countries where it's basically state propaganda or or some form of propaganda. And you know, obviously, that's something we've been reading about the last two or three weeks, looking at what's happening in Russia, and that puts a whole different com- complexion on on what's going on. And, I, and I'm just wondering about that that balance then coming back because uh, I think it, I mean everything both of you said is 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 correct about you know if we had some you know you know if this was called journalist take on the news right i mean what what journalists would be thinking about both practicing and, and aspiring journalists about what the balance is between the new and the newsworthy right how to attract people's attention to get interested in whatever's going on but also then how to keep their attention and to deepen that knowledge and that must be a very difficult balancing act when you are in a business by and large and you're chasing ratings or chasing clicks or whatever you're you're, you're doing because you need to stay in a job that must be very very tricky for them. There there is a sense when you watch the news now that that there's a lot more um that, that that efforts are constantly being paid to keep you to keep you watching because you might yeah. shift off to something else and that, that a lot of those efforts seem to involve a kind of ratcheting up both of sort of narrative drama but also the kind of easy emotional takes on on things so there is i think there is a a cost to you know there are there are moments where you listen to the news where you feel as though you've learnt what reporters in the field sort of feel about what it's like for them to be there but you've learned very very and it's fascinating and you're hooked in because you care about the person in front of you but you've learned very little about how they're gaining their information exactly sort of the details of of that um so i think there is a uh, it must be a very hard job but uh, but there are we are seeing costs of that being a very hard job. One thing that I was I was struck by was, I mean, the the keeping our attention thing that you were saying, Lucy. And um, one thing I was struck by was during the pandemic on on the BBC News website, there was a thing every day: five things you need to know about coronavirus today. I would be incredibly surprised if there were five distinct things for every day for the last two two and a half years that I needed to know. Like, I feel like after the first 
couple of months, mainly what I knew is that we didn't know much. And, you know, that the amount of information I needed was progressively less as it became clear that this was just, you know, more of the same. Um, there were brief moments where the rules changed, that it was useful to keep track of them. But actually, the idea that every single day I should be learning five new things about coronavirus sort of seemed more about making sure that, that I was urgently feeling the need to click on the new, you know, anxiously feeling the need to click on the news website, that it was about making sure I had the information that was necessary for me to get through my life. I think I think that that example raises a kind of another difficulty that it must be to be a news producer is that there's there's a determination of what it is that your it's your duty to inform the public of but there's also a kind of practical duty to make sure that things go well as possible in some ways so so it was it was very interesting having experts on during the sort of lockdowns saying can we stop talk? Can you please stop reporting on the few people that break the the guidelines or break the law? Because because actually most people are keeping to it, and that only it only makes people fewer people keep to it. If you give a false impression of how many people are breaking, we're we're social animals. We do what others do. Um, it it actually made the situation worse um and then of course there's the 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 effects of the news on people's mental health and so on so there's this there's this 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 sort of need for the news to be able to not only as it were track what we need to know but also consider what the news the news itself is so much part of our everyday lives now um and without making itself its own topic one of one of the things that that is difficult about getting it right is, you know, meeting those duties to to not make things worse. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, this would take us onto a whole different topic. But the sort yeah. of shrill news that you see in some countries itself creates a, a level of paranoia almost in some people, which itself can have grave consequences. I mean, I'm thinking about some examples, perhaps in the US, where you think about the, the amount of gun crime and violence out there which itself might contribute to people thinking they have to protect themselves and so on and so forth but then exactly listeners in the u.s would know more more about that than 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 the three of us do um listen i think we should um leave it there thanks both of you uh coming up on philosophy takes on the news five things you need to know about philosophy today or, or, or perhaps not. Um, this week, we should say uh, thanks to Graham and Lucy for all their thoughts, and also to Helen as well for uh, however long her laptop battery lasted. Um, thanks also to you for listening and all being well. We'll see you again for another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.